0: everyone it's rabbi hannah and today we're going to start off the podcast talking about social isolation havera member katya Hopi is a mental health nurse who has struggled with the effects of social isolation herself but you may have spoken to her because katya has been a major part of the hill havera's effort to call and check in on each one of our members after i talk with katya i'm going to introduce to you a friend who's an expert on young children and has a lot of wisdom to share about talking to young kids about racism That's something that I know many of us are trying to get our heads around. But first, here's Katya.
1: I am a 77-year-old woman. Uh, I'm a single woman. I'm a retired uh, mental health professional.
0: And I want to mention that not only does Katya live alone, but at the time we recorded this episode and since the pandemic began, she has not had a computer or smartphone or any internet. So I called her on her landline telephone to ask her how she's been getting through this spring.
1: I had been socially isolated prior to this pandemic. Okay. Seriously. So I've gotten some help for it. And all of a sudden was studying social isolations. Now there's a difference between social isolation and solitude. Now I'm feeling solitude, which means I now have joy and peace at being alone and with my new dog and Uh, How did you get there? I started studying social isolation, which has been proven to have the same effect on health as smoking cigarettes each day. Uh, During the virus, the regular phone contact with others can help minimize the impact of social isolation. Now, um, when a person lacks a sense of belonging socially, lacks engagement with others, has minimal social contact, and difficulty developing or maintaining quality, fulfilling relationships. Living alone does not necessarily mean that you are socially isolated. Right. Um, And it isn't just older people, okay? It can be a postpartum woman. It can be a young person moving to the city for the first time, people nested within a family, and so... What has helped me is I finally got the right kind of uh, mental health I needed uh, with Kaiser, and I have improved rapidly within six months. I will not need therapy soon, okay? I'm enjoying being alone and sharing my knowledge with other people. Um, how I discovered I was truly socially isolated, I was reading an article on the symptoms of social isolation, And verbal outpouring is one of them. My speech was always pressured. I would go out. I was socially isolated. I'd be out walking the dog, and I'd see a neighbor. And, I mean, pressured speech, pressured, pressured, pressured. Um, Say that I would meet you, okay? And I might want to start to tell you something, say, about uh, the gospel music I was learning to sing, okay? But Mm -hmm. then I'd go on from that to this, to that, to the other thing. And then you would even have difficulty trying to move from me, okay? And I noticed that the speech was pressured, but I could not control it.
0: How would you advise listeners who are experiencing social isolation, who are feeling that pressure that you described or, or other warning signs um, where they, they feel like they're sort of they're They're really feeling it, what would you advise both as a mental health professional and as someone who has like sought out help and 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 reached a place of peace?
1: Yes, um what I have discovered is if someone is socially isolated trying to help get get them reconnected, okay yeah. What doesn't really work is someone calling and saying to the person, "Hi." This is Katya. I'm calling to check on you. See, that has a very negative impact. Mm. You, oh, I need to be checked on. You know? Yeah. So what helps? What helps though is it's very interesting, and it's things that I did, which I didn't really realize were helpful. Okay. One is you talk with neighbors. Okay. Joining faith-based activities and volunteering. And that's exactly what I have done. And it works.
0: Yeah. And just again, to reiterate for listeners, like Katya has been volunteering during the pandemic from home with no computer access. She has been organizing the phone tree for Capitol Hill Village, which is an organization that connects seniors in Capitol Hill. And uh, she's been a key, key player doing a lot of the work behind the effort to give phone calls to every single up household during the pandemic and follow-ups, right, Katya?
1: Right now, I've we're finding out that there are many things that we need to focus on. Okay, making sure people are sleeping. Okay, it's the first question I want to know yeah. because I have a friend who was home alone in a senior high-rise. Very sharp woman, and she got her sleeping all goofed up, and then. Began to sound incoherent if you talk with her in the evening time. And what the study, what they're showing with that is, is that if that continues over time, it can lead to early uh, cognitive impairment, maybe dementia. So the first question I always ask, how did you sleep last night? And some people were too much into the TV, into uh, what's happening with the pandemic. And what happens is the narrators are what. Is upsetting to the people because they agitate in their commentary. I get the paper every morning, so at least when I'm I'm reading the paper, I am reading it, not someone telling me about it. So we've helped help them reduce watching TV. Now another thing, I don't know if <laughs> this is a little silly in a way, but um, many of the folks are up at night going to the bathroom all the time. Okay, yeah. well. If you're having fluid before you go to bed, just sip. Don't gulp. Well, guess what? Nobody's up going to the bathroom during the night. One lady was going so much, she'd grab her walker and she had good embrace and she'd fall. Now she's not doing that. Isn't that great?
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, we're calling ourselves the squad. My five people, the squad. The um, healthful aspects of maturity, squad. You know, as you grow up, people teach you about menstruation, menopause, whatever. This is just another part, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It
1: doesn't have to be seen as decline. So we're looking at those kinds of things and getting people away from watching so much TV.
0: Hey, so, you know, when this pandemic eventually ends one day, do you, do you plan to meet some of these people in person? Like, do you think you'll yes. be keeping up with a lot of this work that you've been doing
1: I'm looking forward to um, meeting people because some of them live right down here in my neighborhood, okay? And mm-hmm. we're looking forward to meet. And one, there's a pool in one lady's apartment building, so I'll be swimming again and get her swimming. And the other thing is you talk with me about taking some online courses. And so I'm looking forward to that as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Awesome. And, and I dance. Dancing helps decrease social isolation yeah
0: um so katya, I know that your journey into your Jewish involvement and your Jewish communal life um was not a linear one. uh Could you tell us some about about that how you grew into your Judaism and how it uh, how it, how it shapes who you are today?
1: Yes, um I was raised as a Lutheran, my people um, were at the polish german border I'm told, and when the Uh, pogrom started and so they became lutheran it was the national religion of germany so they could escape to the united states but they could not say they were jewish or they'd be deported okay so my grandma took a lot of care of me as i was growing up and spoke yiddish to me um and so when i I attended a, a performance from the yiddish theater of new york and they're singing yiddish and i'm wondering how come I understand what they're saying? <laughs> mm-hmm. It's because of grandma. And then, um, so then my uncle, the Lutheran minister, told me one day we're walking, and he said he'd call me kiddo. Kiddo, we have a beautiful secret. We're really Jewish. And when I was here in um, DC, finally I got a mentor, and he, a rabbi, and he suggested that I convert so then there'd be no questions, you know?
0: Wait, so tell us, yeah. uh, how old were you when you learned? As, as as he put it, I love that, the, the beautiful secret that you were Jewish. And then also, how old were you when you went through your formal conversion?
1: I found out that I was Jewish. Let's see, I was, I believe I was in my late 40s, early 50s. It. it was, um, I converted, I'm trying to think, um, probably 20 some years ago as well.
0: And could you share, um, do you have like a favorite, a favorite Havara
1: memory that you think of when a,
0: when you think of the community,
1: the, the favorite thing I loved, one of the first High Holy Days, you had the children all coming around. It, it was just, I like to see an integrated community, you know, intergenerational, okay? Yeah. And seeing those children and how they're learning very early and the love everyone gave yeah. to them and the parents and the teachers and the rabbis and the smiles on their faces. Oh, Mm. Oh, yeah, I mean, just it just grabbed my heart. It was just so delicious, yes, I love it, yes,
0: Katya, thank you so, so much for taking the time to have this conversation, and just for your thoughtfulness and your openness um this is it's been a beautiful conversation. I'm so excited to share it with our listeners.
1: oh, thank you so much i It's an honor.
0: So last week I was on Facebook and saw a video that a friend of mine posted. It was her talking to her five-year-old about the killing of George Floyd. It was so powerful and so well done and so age-appropriate somehow. And since she's an expert in preschool education, I interviewed her on this Chavaradcast to ask more about how to talk
2: to young kids about these difficult issues. Um, I'm Jillian Best Adler. I am the wife of Rabbi Jake Best Adler, and I work in Philadelphia for an organization called First Up, Champions for Early Education. My background is in child development, and for years I was a preschool teacher, and I worked as an adult educator as well in that context.
0: Jill, thank you so much for joining us on the Hilchavaradcast. Um, You posted a really powerful, beautiful, and I want to say like a provocative uh, video uh, with your oldest son, talking with him about police brutality and about the Black Lives Matter movement on Facebook. I loved the video and it raised a lot of questions for me. As the mother of a two-year-old, when should I start talking uh, with my child about these things? And then what are, quote, these things, end quote? Like, what are the things I should be talking about and then, of course, how to do it. I know that lots of folks at the Chavara, um are, are having similar questions. And so I guess, what are the conversations we should
2: be having with our kids right now, especially our young kids? So much of it depends on what your children already know, mm-hmm. both in general and ab- about this specific situation right now. Like, do they know about George Floyd? What do they know about race? What do they know about racism? So your starting point has to be based on sort of where they already are and just temperamentally how much they're, they're willing to sit down and have a conversation with you. So we're, the starting point is wherever you think it is, like thinking of Julius, thinking of a two-year-old, you're not going to sit down and say, well, there's this thing called racism and it's when people are, are treated badly by a system, you know, that's not going to land on his level. Um, But you want to be working towards towards him being able to be aware of what's happening in the world and be an actor against racism. If you think about what a person needs to be in order to fight for, for good and for justice in the world, think about building those values into your parenting from the earliest ages. These things aren't even about race. These are just about building in good values. So you're, you're teaching them about taking turns and respecting others, and, and you're building in these values into your parenting, and these align with Jewish values as well. So they're, they're present in, in so many people's parenting anyway. Um, people just aren't giving themselves credit that you're building in values that are going to lead to a child to learn about racism and other injustices and oppression, and they're automatically going to have a sense of, that's wrong, and that is not what I want for my world. Yeah. Um,
0: what so- are some of those values?
2: So I I sort of plotted this out along um, the age progression. So with with infants, the best thing to be doing is to teach them to trust. Teach them to trust you by providing responsive, sensitive care. So your baby cries, you pick them up and you soothe them. You meet their needs. That's the first step of helping them learn how to build a healthy, safe relationship with another person. When they're toddlers, we're often tempted to, force them to share things, thinking that that's the good value that we want to build in. But that teaches children to compete with each other versus teaching them to have empathy for somebody else's needs. Or we can instead encourage them to do turn taking. When, when you're done, you can have, let the other child have a turn. So let them know when you're done so that they can have a turn. Look, she wants to use the same toy that you do. She likes it too. When you're done, let her use it. So that, um, that right there is giving the child a chance to look at another person and say, you're similar to me, you have similar interests, we don't have to compete over the same resources. And so much of at, at an adult level, when people are struggling with, um, you know, if you get justice, if you get rights, that takes away from me. Like, I believe that we can start to nip that in the bud by, by just avoiding the the idea that you having something means somebody else doesn't. Yeah. yeah. And then we move into the older ages where we're teaching um, the children to respect each other's bodies. Like, you don't hug or kiss without asking first. You, um, when you're wrestling in roughhousing, when they say stop, you stop right away. Like you're teaching them to, to see each other's humanity. You know, children are come to us just very egotistical and they develop a sense of empathy. They right. develop a sense of understanding somebody else's desires and, and dislikes. And the more we can build that up, we're preparing them for a conversation when it's at an appropriate age to say, there are people in our in our society who don't treat people well, and we don't agree with them. Here's what we do to rise up against it.
0: I love that. And as the parent of a not quite two and a half year old uh, with a, I don't want to say short attention span, probably normal for his age, but you know, like he's very active. The idea of teaching empathy through turn taking and through consent, like that feels really... I mean, challenging, but like doable. It makes yeah. sense. At what point did you start talking to Daniel about specific issues and like, and just, dis- and disturbing, um, disturbing issues like racism? And I mean, like you, you were speaking with him in that video very directly about, about George Floyd's murder.
2: That was actually our first, well, th- not that specific one, but that day, I would say was the first time we had really talked about, um, about this being a life or death situation for people. Mm -hmm. We've been building towards discussions of justice for years. We started, you know, when he was probably about two, you know, looking at books that had different types of people in it and pointing out different skin colors. This person has brown skin. This person has peach skin. We call these people white people. We call these people black people. So that he had um, some vocabulary to use for talking about differences. In our family, we are a mixed race family. So there's, there's, you know, hands-on, evidence of people having physical differences Mm -hmm. um our our toys reflect that our books reflect that the the images that we put on his bedroom wall reflect that um so there was already um some forward progression and then you know in school when he goes to preschool they talk about um you know the typical things that come up during black history month he knew about martin luther king he knew about rosa parks so you know taking sort of what in a way is a a watered-down preschool curriculum-level conversation about that, we would bring it home and go more in-depth. But, you know, he's, he's hit that sort of kindergarten next step in his development where he was able to to process things a little bit more deeply, and he found out about um, George Floyd's murder. So that was the opportunity to say, I can't just let this go unaddressed. He's going to have questions and concerns and fears that will manifest if I don't address it directly. How did he um, find out well, um, my mother told him. Actually, she lives with us, so even though he's not exposed to a lot of things out in the world, he is exposed to three adults. She told him about it, and he started asking questions. And she didn't know exactly where to where to end what she was telling him. So I revisited it with him to make sure that if he had any lingering questions, that they could be addressed. Um, kids don't often ask their questions; they they make assumptions, and assumptions can be unsafe because. They just might, they go to a place that isn't rooted in logic or reality. Um, there's like fearful thinking, imaginative thinking that they, that they put on a thing that seems ambiguous. So we needed to, to address it directly and clearly. And that's something that I would say for like the five to eight crowd um, is, is an appropriate way to approach with kids sense. older than that. I, it's beyond my range of expertise, but I do think that, um, that kids are, are looking for answers when they hear about things, and it's probably best to err on the side of telling them more rather than letting them find out from somebody else or make their own assumptions about it.
0: And so for families with young children who are feeling pretty confident that their kids aren't hearing any news or anything from anyone but them, is there a responsibility to sort of proactively inform children about about anything beyond what they would read
2: in social justice-themed little kids' books? Yeah, I think that it's, I think that it's definitely the right place to start. Um, the more you build up their skill level in having vocabulary and having some awareness around it, um, the better off they are for being prepared for that conversation, but it's also a chance for parents to prepare themselves. Yeah. So feeling what feels right to you to say Um, when you're talking about skin color or race, like when you're naming it, like a lot of people have discomfort with what words to use, what's right. Talking with your two-year-old about it gives you practice. So when you're talking to your eight-year-old about it, it's not like a brand new thing that you have to find out what to say. There are things that you give information on when it's the, the right time. And you as the parent know when it's the right time. I would say the worst thing that you could do is, apart from overtly teaching them racist ideals, is to um, push away their questions to hmm. get so uncomfortable that you um, choose not to acknowledge it because the message that they take away is this is a taboo and I'm not supposed to talk about it.
0: Right. Okay. So here's a, here's a question. Like is it possible to go too far? And here's what I mean. We were raised in an environment where we were taught to be quote colorblind and quote, we've been learning more and more lately in, in the last several years about at least about how dangerous that actually is and how that like mo really perpetuates racist structures and i'm i'm understanding that if you know our our child asks us questions about people's skin colors we need to answer frankly and not make it sound like there that was a bad question um is but is it possible to go too far like you know, if I were to cover my white child's bedroom with posters of, you know, children of color exclusively, give him only,
2: do you know what I mean? Like, like where, do, where, do, where is the line? It's a great question. And, and like, I, I totally agree. Like, we were raised in this colorblind is the best way to be sort of ideal. So many of us who are parenting now, both uh, younger Gen Xers and older millennials, we don't have a lot of models for how this conversation looks or how this should be handled in terms of our toys and our books and things like that. Um, What I tell preschool teachers when I do these trainings is that you want to think about who's in the child's social circle, who's in their neighborhood and who's not. And that's where you put the representation. You put the representation into their worlds to so that they can recognize the people that they know and, and, Introducing to people that they might not get a chance to see so you don't you know plaster your whole walls with all pictures of children of color, but you you have some
0: Jill, thank you so much. This was incredibly helpful If you are interested in seeing the video that Jill posted Jess has added the link to the episode summary and if you can't find it on your podcast host, let me know and also Let me know if you're feeling any of the symptoms of social isolation that we talked about earlier in the episode if Katya can get through this time living alone with no internet and even find ways to somehow support others through it, I believe that each one of us can do this with support. As always, the Hill podcast was produced by the wonderful Jess Smith. We will talk to you next time. When the night falls, look into the sky. and Just you try to count the bright stars shining. This is our sign. Every time you watch the stars and you feel so, so tiny, don't forget that I have made you the beginning of an infinite line. So, total I share no Moving me me. Just look into the sky and see the sound about bleed, that's how it is you and me and i will never ever ever change a thing when it's dark and hazy look into the sky as i have put my rainbow up there this is our sign every time those colors rise among the
1: Thinking cloudy don't forget that i will never ever